You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's episode, I'm delighted to be sitting with someone I haven't seen for a very long time, but I think for a long period there, nearly a decade went by where we spoke constantly about Brick nearly every week and about the Think Brick Awards. And it's my real privilege to be here with Cameron Bruin, who is the Dean of Architecture at the University of Queensland. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) It's good to be talking bricks, blocks and pavers again. Again. (laughs) You've had a bit of a lull. Before we get started, I just wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up. Goodness, that's a bit of a, let's start at the very beginning way of of, uh, commencing our podcast. (laughs) It's a very good question and one that I have pondered of recent years, actually, being of a certain age, of of middle age, one tends to start thinking about the sorts of things that have shaped their career. Mm. And some of those are professional, of course, about people you've met, the people you've worked with, the people have mentored and guided you along the way. But then, of course, there is that question about you know, the, the experiences that you've had as a child mm. and how they've shaped your career. So I have thought about this and <laughs> not having thought about it very much before, it became quite clear that there were two things that are worth remarking on in terms of my childhood that have shaped my, my, my career. My ma- maternal grandfather, uh, Alan Schultz, was a home builder, a, a builder on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. So in the 1980s, when I was a child, he was building houses in places like Nambour and Noosa and Maroochydore, and I can remember many experiences of going on site and visiting the projects that my grandfather and my my uncle who worked with him were building and being fascinated by construction sites and, and what happened on construction sites. And did you, were you living in that area or were you yeah. based here in Brisbane? So I was born in a town called Bundaberg. Oh, yes. I spent some of my child in Bundaberg, some in Gympie before coming to Brisbane as just before becoming a teenager. So very much of that Sunshine Coast region. My father's family had settled in a place called Ganalda, between halfway between Gympie and Meribra, mm-hmm. and had grown pawpaws and bananas in the first half of the of the 20th century. So my other grandfather, so my mother's father, Alan Schultz, was a a good solid house builder in mm-hmm. the 1980s. And my other grandfather, my father's father, really encouraged me to write. And really worked with me in my schoolwork at various times to help me become a better writer. Mm. And I do have a very strong recollection of perhaps age eight or ten winning a writing competition at school and my grandfather being tremendously proud of this achievement of having written a story and entered it and won a voucher for five dollars at the local pharmacy in Gympie to go and buy something. It's big money back those days. (laughs) It was big money. So you know not surprisingly thinking about that, though those two types of encouragement or those two types of interactions that somehow ending up with a career in architecture and publishing or Mm. building and writing might seem somehow reasonably obvious, but really only occurred to me in the last couple of years that those two things and the encouragement of those two people has has been really quite important. And why why did he help you? Was it that they thought at the time you were doing really well at writing or that you could improve at it? No, it's a a really good question. So Mm. 
the reason that he was so interested in both writing and public speaking is because of their religious background. Okay. So on both sides of my family, I come from a very strong religious tradition, which encourages writing, public speaking, and being able to talk to others and make arguments and get a point of view across. So Mm -hmm. I guess from his point of view, he was looking to me as being someone who might continue a very strong tradition, a kind of pastoral, public speaking, congregational type of of expertise. Yep. Um, And he saw that encouraging me in that field in that way might lead that direction. Of course, it didn't, but Mm. it it was part of his thinking about how how a young person um, should be trained as they came up, for example, in the church. Yeah. And so that's sort of more, I guess, primary school age. And then what happens when you get to that end of senior school and deciding where to study? It's a really, yeah, <laughs> this is fascinating. The headline here is I'm first in family. So I'm the first person in my family to go to university, which was it's a big deal. It's quite a big deal. Mm. Uh, like I think generational the role of education in generational change, I think, is incredibly important and one which I'm incredibly passionate about in my current role at, at UQ. I didn't like high school terribly much. I think in part because I'd come from growing growing up in a much more informal way in the country. Okay. Uh, I wasn't very good at maths or science. I was quite interested in history and art. And I think high school is also a difficult period for queer children. High schools particularly in that in queer that children is, uh, high schools is always going to be about both settling out what you can might do in your career, but also settling down who you might be. Mm. Particularly if who you might be is completely at odds with who people imagined you might be and mm. the kind of way in which you were brought up. I would say my high school was career was indistinguished. Mm. What I had what had begun in high school was a lifelong interest in antiques. So when I was 17, in my final year of high school, I went and did work experience in an antique store here in Brisbane called the Paddington Antique Centre and met a group of incredible people who I'm still friends with. I don't want want to count how many years ago that was, but I met a really interesting, passionate group of antique dealers at, at 17, 18, and they that group of people really did change my perspective on lots of things in life. So I worked in that antique store at Paddington behind that counter every Saturday for a decade. So from when I was 18, because that was the earliest age at that time you could work in an antique store under the Secondhand Dealers Act. Wow. And so I worked behind that counter at Paddo pretty much every Saturday until I finished my architecture studies. So I, I dabbled a bit in antiques and yes. hanging around auction rooms and shops in, in Brisbane for a couple of years and then started architecture when I was 23 and studied my two degrees in, in architecture at UQ, all the while working in the antique store on a Saturday. On a Saturday. Cameron, I just wonder whether we can go, was it, was it a relief for you to leave school? Did you find university more liberating? Yes. I mean, there's a gap there. For me, between finishing high school and starting university. Yes. But when I arrived at UQ in first year of architecture in 1998, I was like, this is my tribe. Okay. Like, yeah. these are my people. Mm. And I work with some of those people today. So I was recently talking to one of my colleagues and we were reminiscing on the fact that we met when we were both in first year. Yes. So, so many of those personal and professional friendships collaborations 
have you know been going for 25 years now but yeah i got to when i got to uq to study architecture in 98 i was like here i am and then how did sort of just that time at university shape your i guess approach or impression of architecture in my opinion mm. for if we were looking at the australian architectural scene in the late 90s the most exciting place to be was brisbane <laughs> there's absolutely no question about that now that I that's I didn't know that. No. Okay. I'm first year, second year, third year student of architecture at UQ yes. in the late nineties. How would you know? You're only just working out what the profession actually is. Yeah. But what's clear to me now, okay. having reflected and, and written a lot about the recent trajectory, the last you know, twenty five years of, of architecture in Australia, that that period in the late nineties in Brisbane was an absolute turning point, flashpoint. This was a moment at which Queensland architecture positioned itself both, both nationally and internationally okay. in a way that hadn't happened before. Mm. So part of it is to do with an, an emergence of a new crop of practices, yep. Donovan Hill probably yeah. being the most well-known. Their, their big their kind of debut as a practice happens in Architecture Australia magazines, May issue 1999, where they're a residential project and a commercial project in Brisbane get published alongside each other, mm. side by side in AA. And this, I think this moment, May 1999, you see the Queensland architecture scene representing itself in a new form with new directions to a national and I think increasingly international audience. Yeah. So in terms of my student experience, I, of, course, of course, I was being influenced by that and mm -hmm. the teachers like Britt Anderson and Anthony Moulis and John MacArthur were all embedded and had shaped that scene that was bursting out and, and reshaping the image of what the image, the approach, the trajectory of Queensland architecture. So I can be, I can say I was very fortunate because my education began at that moment, yeah. at which there was a lot going on, mm. and it was a very exciting time of renewal. And so, what happens? You finish university, and then what happens? It's a good. Uh, this is a, this is a cute segue, which now seems a bit strange in many respects. So, of course, because. Cecil Brune had been encouraging me as a child to write mm -hmm. and to talk, be able to communicate my ideas. I did very well at the history and theory subjects within yep. my undergraduate program. And Professor John MacArthur and my tutor at the time, Professor Naomi Stead, identified me quickly as someone who might be able to tutor. Mm -hmm. So I'd finished third year and started tutoring first year. Seems quite curious now. So... They were very they were very quickly encouraging me to pursue that the possibilities of writing and thinking yep. about architecture in, in that in that way. An approach had come to John MacArthur from the then editor of Architecture Australia, Justine Clark, to write about an exhibition of the work of Christina Waterson, who's an architect artist, I yes. would say that was being held in Brisbane for a new magazine that was about to be launched Okay. Uh, called Artichoke Magazine, which ah. was being re relaunched in the early 2000s. And John wrote back to Justine and said, lovely, I'd, I'd like to do this. I enjoy I think Christina's work is really interesting. I don't have time. Would Could I recommend a student mm -hmm. to do this piece of writing for this relaunch of Artichoke Magazine? Mm -hmm. And so long story short, John recommends me to Justine. Justine goes, well, if John says he can do it, he can do it. So I write an article. 
mm-hmm. for Artichokes sort of magazine. First. first. And that was my first yeah. article for the magazine. They must have liked it. Six months, maybe 12 months later, they asked me to write another article about the work of um, a commercial artist called Douglas Annand, mm-hmm. which was being held at, held at the Queensland Art Gallery. So I wrote that article. They then advertised for an editor of the magazine called Artichoke. Mm-hmm. And, well, long story short, before I'd finished my studies, I had a job in Melbourne at Architecture Media as mm-hmm. the associate editor of Artichoke. And I moved to Melbourne and started a publishing career. I mean, it does, it's, it's, that's a really kind of a series of very serendipitous moments that lead to hopping on that plane and getting to Melbourne. And I just wondered, like, was there, because you'd studied architecture and and the anticipation that you might design and create and build, was Mm. there any sort of point where you were like, oh, was this the way you saw it going? Do you know what I mean? I have to admit, I've never really had much angst about that. Okay, yeah. Um, about that pathway because, of course, yeah. as I say to our students, you're on a pathway to a professional career, mm. to becoming in time a registered architect and um, being responsible for projects. I've never really had any angst about choosing another path. Yep. I wonder if it was because I never had any time to think about it <laughs> because having arrived in Melbourne and got on this this kind of roller coaster ride and it was so exciting and I was meeting so many interesting people and having incredible experiences that I never really had time mm. to think about well why didn't I not do that? It had it it had just become almost a natural progression. Yeah. And so how long were you editor of Artichoke? So I was associate editor for the first I think couple of years. Yeah. Then became editor. And then a moment of change occurred and I became both editor of Artichoke, which documents Australian interior architecture and design, alongside being editor of Landscape Architecture Australia. Oh, yes. So there was okay. a period where I had this sort of bifocal and quite intellectually enriching experience of looking at interior design and landscape architecture as yeah. sort of as sub-branches of architecture and editing those two magazines side by side, which was really quite a fascinating period where I got to know and work with two really vibrant communities, mm-hmm. the, in, yes. the interior design community and the landscape community, and made lots of great contacts and friends through that that period. Mm. I actually left architecture media for a, a little while at the end of that period yes. and went to work for Hassel for a year as their head of communications yes. for a year and then went back to architecture media in 2010 to be editorial director. And I think that's when our paths started to cross. That's right. And I think if I remember the time, there was no brick buildings in any publications that were architecturally designed. That was There was none. I think there was maybe one that was using recycled brick, but I remember at the time there was none. That's when you were at the start of that journey. About... I know. 12 years ago now. Mm. Mm. And I think that's when we... There was a little bit of time there where we sort of really were strategizing about the awards and they'd been in a conceptual phase and then we were moving into now sort of seeing a little bit of change coming through. And then you were always fabulous around connecting and and then, of course, being on the jury and then, of course, looking at different buildings that were being built within Brick. 
And and you were the editor for, was it 10 years ago? So I was editorial director at Architecture Media for close to a decade yeah. before coming back to Brisbane to take up this role. And then over that decade, what did you see as the key changes, not only in the profession, but just in what was being built? Yeah, that's a, a big that, question. That's a big question. Yeah. So I've done a lot of thinking about what happened in publishing, of mm-hmm. course, over that period. Yes. Because being generationally positioned in terms of my career in publishing to have navigated the shift from only print to this wild, fascinating, complex world where we have, you know, experienced a, de- a digital re- revolution. So I'm, I'm completely, of course, fascinated by that change and having reflect reflecting on that change. I think in architecture, we could argue that lots has changed, but a lot, a lot hasn't. Yeah. I think we might have 10 years ago ex- expected there might be more reorganisation of practice types. Okay. Probably hasn't really happened. We might have expected to have seen increased globalisation in terms of practice, perhaps, but mm. no, not, I wouldn't say markedly. No. Many of the tropes of, of practice are still very clear, like the, the emerging practice who builds the, the very fine residential work that, that launches their career and segues them into, into, in, into bigger things. And mm. we can see that with the many of the practices have gone on to get gold medals. The first house yes. is the one that launches that practice and their ideas and that over time they scale those up. Mm. I, in fact, I think I would now argue that we've got a very big catch-up period in terms of architecture from here through to 2050. So if we're thinking about what a net zero future looks like and mm. what the pathway from here to 2050 is, and now that that's a mandate and there's a line, mm. a deadline, I, I suspect we will see a number of changes facing the industry. Okay. For example, we might have 10 years ago ex- thought that building information modelling, BIM and digital twins would be absolutely profession defining activities yes. at this point in time. Yep. You would you would clearly have expected that to be the case because the technologies that underpin BIM have been around for at least 10 years. In my one of the first years I was editorial director at Architecture Media, I went off to a big conference in Las Vegas with a software firm to hear about the future yep. of digital twins. And yet some of the bugs BIM. are still there. <laughs> well, one of my very learned colleagues at at UQ, who's from the business school, says it's a kind of classic S-curve innovate, S-curve in innovation in that the technology's existed for 10 years. Not much has happened. A few things could happen in the next two years and trigger a, a massive uptick in yep. terms of the uptake of those sorts of technologies. So there's certain things that have happened, mm. but I, I actually think it's more remarkable sorts of things that we thought might happen that haven't. Yeah, that, yeah. And the, the fundamentals of architectural practice have, have remained remained pretty solid but also there's some challenges we haven't faced up to i'm thinking about questions of equity and diversity in practice about careers of of minority groups within minority and other groups within within architectural practice Mm. we probably haven't seen the inroads there in terms of creating a profession that's truly a reflection of the community it serves so there's Mm. there's a lot of work to be done there i think we can look to organizations like parlor and their efforts over the last decade that have really pushed that forward, but there's mm. still a long way to go on some of those. But you, I think I agree with you. I mean, we've been really privileged to look at some of these practices that we didn't really, I didn't appreciate at the time we're starting out and then all that 
have just really grown and developed. And it's now you sort of realize they're just a massive deal. Whereas mm. 10 years ago, we weren't thinking the magnitude of that. But at the same time, I guess for more from a gender perspective, the same things ring true. Like most of the women that are successful have gone out and had their own architectural practices. And, you know, I don't want to be too controversial, but there still aren't those big firms where you've got a, a female leading them. So, and that's... That's not very... controversial. That's just fact, Elizabeth. Okay. <laughs> so I agree with you there. Yeah. yeah. So there's certain things that are... I mean, that used to be one of the big excitements of being a magazine editor. Mm-hmm. Like discovering the sense of like unearthing or discovering a new practice and launching them forward into the into the world and I, I think I'm at the also at that career moment where I'm thinking about the people who who guided me and also mm. who 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 has done projects before whose work I my work is based has to mm. it is it springboards off or that foundation and I look back and think about the work of Davina Jackson as incredibly influential editor of Architecture Australia mm. and her nose for talent. Mm. And that used to be the bre- kind of bread and butter of, of, of architectural publishing is being able to, to identify the new and always keep it, you know, exciting and fresh. Mm. And, of course, what the, as you say, the, the excitement comes from watching a practice who you've, you've, you know, published for the first time in a magazine go on to do something incredibly exciting to get bigger and bigger and more important commissions over the course of their career. And what have you noticed around Brick? I mean, you've been heavily involved in our industry and and we're tremendously grateful that you have been. What did you notice about it over the time? As you sat on, I think, A number juries, of juries. Maybe for, oh, goodness, it would have nearly been eight or nine years. Really? I think so. So um, lots of different juries, lots yeah. of different conversations. Yes. What, what, did, what, did you, what have you noticed about Brick in architecture? Over that period, I think we clearly saw a re-emergence of brick outside of the residential sphere. Mm-hmm. So more and more integration of brick, blocks, tiles, pavers in the commercial and public environments mm. around brick as an indicator of a higher status building, you know, residential buildings using particularly multi-residential, embracing re, you know, re-embracing brick construction. Mm-hmm. We also saw brick kind of integral in the kind of high quality public domain works you know which mm-hmm. i think you could argue wasn't the case before then it wasn't anyway and, and in a way in, and i've talked about this the sydney the development of the public domain in sydney from the olympics on is kind of also another world world-class moment in terms mm-hmm. of the built environment and you can see that brick was incredibly influential in that in that reimagining of the public realm across mm. Sydney. Mm. I, mean, I can point to a number of exemplary projects which are in which brick is is, a, is a essential to that 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 quality public domain. Mm. And now in your current role, I mean what do you see as the role of young architects for the future? What are you seeing as their greatest challenges? Yeah. This is this is something that occupies my mind of course every mm. day. And to give a pointy edge to that, or you know, pointy um, reason reasoning behind that, I recently was reminded by someone that the the first year students that arrived at the School of Architecture at UQ this week to begin their careers in architecture, you know, they're in their late teens. A group of them are going to be the leaders of practice in twenty fifty. 
they are going to be the directors and the principals and the industry leaders in 2050. So we have a very big responsibility in ensuring that we prepare them for those that career and for the changes that will occur in the built environment over that period. So to me, there are, there are really two streams or two directions that we have to observe very closely and ensure that we educate for. And, I, and when I say educate for, I think it involves both students, but also the, ed, the, the entire profession oriented mm. orienting itself towards the future yeah the first of those is about the journey to net zero yep and i think that's very clearly the agenda and about evolving the sustainability conversation to be able to address that requirement the second is about caring for country and about the relationship of the built environment of what we built today with the the knowledge and the leadership of the traditional custodians mm. on the lands on which we are building mm. and acknowledging that in work and about having work that, that embraces the principles of our First Nations people. Mm. So I think, to me, those those two themes are really going to be the generation defining yep. of the next decade. Um, part, about, part of the thing about writing about contemporary architecture is you're also trying to identify moments of change and last last year, I published a, another a book for Thames and Hudson called MMXX, mm. which looked at architecture in Australia since the year 2000. We published it. We finished the work in the early days of the pandemic. It came out during the pandemic, and the book is entirely out of date. <laughs> it's completely and utterly superseded mm. by the period of change that we experienced in 2019, 20, and 21. Mm. And if we look at global global changes in that period, we can see that the person who writes the next story, the next book about 20 years of architecture in Australia mm. in 2040 will produce a fundamentally different book to the book I produced in 2020, yeah. which is fundamentally different to the book that Davina Jackson and Chris Johnson produced in 2000. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just obviously observing the profession and being involved in it, Do you have you seen a change in what, architects do day-to-day as to what they might be doing in the future? Hmm. I mean, this is a question I think the profession constantly interrogates is what is the role of an architect? What does an architect do? Hmm. Um, There are many things that haven't changed. There's many things that we thought might have been enabled by digital technologies. Certainly the extent to which architects can share their ideas by social media platforms has changed. Hmm. And we we can see a real change there in terms of what it means to publish what it means to broadcast, what it means to put your work out for comment by your peers and colleagues. I mean, we certainly see change there. I think what we increasingly see is the desire of the profession, the need of the profession to move further upstream, as in for architectural expertise, architectural knowledge, design problem solving, to actually move to shape some of the wicked problems that challenge the, cons- the realisation of architecture. So this is in the areas of policy and mm. legislation and codes and other areas where architects could have a, could have a real influence. And those, those codes, those statutory moments, really do shape architecture. And I, I think we can see a desire for the profession to, to really move 
in that direction. It's interesting though because we have asked a lot of people that's come on the podcast what they see their role and it's very, it's diverse from some architects saying that it isn't their role to some architects saying it is absolutely their role. They're not there yet. It should be there. So, so I've a, been fascinated. This is a that. really, uh, it's a really good debate. Mm. So John MacArthur, my colleague and someone who really shaped my early career, quotes a philosopher called Tafuri who says that architects should make great buildings and vote. <laughs> okay, so we should just focus on being architects and doing exemplary work as architects and take our political views to the ballot box. Right, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good division to mm. say my professional life is such and I will, I will use my political, I will express my political views, aspirations when I vote at a local, state or federal election. Mm. Then there's, another, there's an alternate point of view which says actually the built environment is inherently political. The role of the architect is implicated in bigger political machinations around legislation and policy and we should be actively seeking to improve the built environment through actively participating in those debates and advocacy. So, I mean, they're two really, they're, they're two very perfectly valid approaches to architecture. And also there's so much grey in both of them. I mean, just because you vote doesn't necessarily mean that's what happens. And when you advocate, it's also the same issue. Mm. So, yeah. So I think that question around... I'm glad to hear that every architect you've sp spoken to in the podcast has a different perspective on what it means to be an architect. Mm. Now, that's to me that makes that's exciting as an educator mm. working in an you know an educational institute. Of course, that's incredibly challenging because we're thinking about well, how do we train an architect who might work in a small practice in Brisbane producing the most exquisite new houses and home extensions for people living and working in Brisbane? And how do we educate an architect who only ever works on high-profile, large-scale competition entries in a global practice mm. where they never go on site, they never talk to a builder? How do we educate someone who goes to work in a government's architect's office who works in policy? Yeah. So that, and dot, dot, dot. There mm -hmm. are, you know, a whole different range of personas that I use to think about the nature of education mm. and how we ensure that at our, the, that the core offer of our architectural education, whether it's at UQ or other places, enables all of those careers by absolutely communicating or absolutely focusing on the fundamentals and gathering together the next necessary expertise to, to kind of focus what might be those other careers. I think, Cameron, where you're at now with this new generation is just such a wonderful use of your talents. You're a wonderful connector and I think you're a fabulous collaborator and you are great at identifying talent and I think that's just something that your students are going to benefit from greatly. And I see your design all over what we've done in the last decade and I want to thank you for all the support that you've given to me personally and the industry. We couldn't have done it without you. Thanks, Elizabeth. I'm a bit teary. <laughs> um, I mean, after this, after this sort of COVID moment of I joke that I've lived the last two years going to three restaurants with eight friends, the same eight friends, and that we've all become quite comfortable with a very small world. Yes. And it's something we're going to have to adjust to coming out of it's not it's not going to be entirely easy to come out of this very 
comfortable, comfortable, but also sort of nested period. Cocoon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got some quick fire round questions. Reading the news and newspaper or online? Uh, radio. Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. For when you were writing, would you use a pen, pencil or an e-pen? Pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Both. What's important to you, style or substance? Neither. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Uh, TV shows. Antique or brand new? Oh, antique, of course. <laughs> Call or text? Both. Travel back in time or into the future? Back in time. Exterior or interior? Both. Video games or board games? Neither. Formal function? Neither. Complex or simple with relation to design? Simple, definitely. Cameron, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's been great. <laughs> if you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.